tonight being the half moon night in the lunar calendar we come together for a night of meditation we're motivated by our interest in the Buddhist path seeking peace, happiness and the Buddha in his wisdom explained how true peace comes through cleansing the heart and the mind the jitta through the practice cleansing the heart from asavas and kilesas rooted in greed hatred delusion so all the buddhist path and the practices that we do are dedicated to liberating us from the effects of the kilesis greed, hatred, delusion on our hearts the flavor of Dhamma practice is always liberation and the Dhamma practice has a liberating effect on our hearts just as all the water in the ocean has one flavour salty flavour so all the teachings of the Buddha have one flavour the flavour of liberation but true liberation has to come through practicing in the right way developing the right causes and conditions for the heart to liberate itself through the practice and the heart of the practice we talk about the non-doing of evil abstaining from evil sabapapasa akaranam and performing that which is wholesome and skillful kusala supasampada and cleansing or purifying the mind sachita pariyotapanam this is the heart of our training as bhikkhus in a monastery or as Buddhists anywhere interested to follow the path this is the flavor, flavor abandoning, abstaining from evil doing good, cleansing the heart leading to liberation again from our teachers Ajahn Chah and others in the forest tradition in the beginning of the practice we have to rely on a lot of patience and endurance and we have to learn how to reflect or contemplate our experience because the nature of kilesas is that they stir up our heart, they bring us suffering and they're very powerful emotional forces 
that affect us all the time. We have to learn how to be very patient in the beginning of the practice. Even that doesn't necessarily come easily. We're learning to be patient, learning to endure, but not without end or purpose. We're learning to be patient so that we can contemplate and through this we start to quieten the mind and develop more peace, more understanding. And the first thing we can see, say, when we come into a monastery and we learn to keep discipline, say, the Vinaya, eight precepts, or ten precepts, 227 precepts, requires patience because the kilesas in our heart do stir us up. We call them the passions. And they affect us, but not always in a good way, obviously. And they're passions that stir us and can create all kinds of suffering for ourselves, for others. So we're learning to use the monastic form, the discipline to help just calm the passions of the kilesas. And in the beginning it takes some adjustment from lay life into the monastic form. So we need to have patience, patience with our own minds. And when we do start to reflect, then we can, we probably have to admit, well, yeah, the kilesas, they're, they, they're hot, and they stir us up. And the Buddha compared them with fire, the fire of greed, the fire of hatred, the fire of delusion. How does that fire manifest? Well, in its strongest, coarsest manifestation it's always in the body and physically when we're under the influence of greed or lust we feel it physically as well as mentally when we're under the influence of anger we feel it physically as well as mentally even delusion attachment to views sense of self in a deluded way, brings us back to this body, manifests as different kinds of feelings in the body as well as the mind. So the beginning of practice is also learning to just restrain the body, calm it down, using both mindfulness, wisdom and sila, restraining our worst excesses of the kilesis. So we learn in a monastery the foundation of practice is one of generosity, kindness, practice of the Brahma Viharas, just learning to live peacefully with other people. And it is something we have to learn, especially if we're used to, in the lay life, doing what we want, according to our own kilesas, going here, going there all the time. <coughs> when you come into a monastery, you have to immediately start to settle down, follow a routine, follow training rules, do things in association with other people as well. some of our kilesas will come up, maybe sometimes quite strongly. You know, we keep celibacy, rules of celibacy, so lust can come up strongly. Living with other people, learning to live in a harmless way, harmless in speech, harmless in action. Sometimes anger arises. 
We have to learn how to restrain that in the very beginning of our practice. We're developing a lot of patient attention to our behavior, our external behavior, and a lot of goodwill. And Brahma Vihara's goodwill, compassion, and equanimity towards different situations and experiences we have. It's only out of this that the deeper states of samadhi and insight can possibly arise. It would be impossible to have much refined insight if we're still caught up in very coarse, destructive emotional states. So a lot of our early effort in the practice is just learning to settle down, follow the routine, keep the rules, learn to be at peace with the people and the situation that we find ourselves in. And that takes effort, takes patient effort. Takes mindfulness, so it's the training in Vinaya and the monastic form is bringing up mindfulness because we have to be more closely aware of our intentions when desires and attachments come up sometimes they're confronted or confounded and we can't always do what we want say what we want, say what we think do what we want so we have to be mindful of that so we're developing mindfulness based around sila actions, speech, and then bringing it back to the mind itself, which is the forerunner of everything we do. And with mindfulness we can pay close enough attention then to start contemplating the truths that we've heard about so often. The impermanence and the suffering the lack of self in our experience of body and mind. It's only when mindfulness is established there's a chance to really see that. Without mindfulness they're just theories, ideas that we've read and heard and we don't actually see them yet. So the whole practice supports, each part supports the whole. And the whole is coming to see the true nature of our existence as human beings. You know, just like building in the monastery, we build sometimes, so we, you get to learn how building processes work, and there's no way you can build a strong building that's going to last a long time without good foundations. You have to prepare the ground, make sure the earth is firm, put down concrete foundations with steel and concrete to hold the weight of the building, whatever it is you're going to build, whether it's a little shed or a, a hall like this. If you don't do the groundwork properly, well the whole building can collapse later or be structurally unsound, unstable, won't last very long. So we have no choice when we come into the monastery. To, we have to put effort into the foundation of sila, and bringing up mindfulness of speech, of action, learning to be patient with conditions, external conditions, people, the place, and internally, patient with our own states of mind all with the view to practicing good sila as a foundation for liberation of the heart. If we put effort into that, then our practice becomes very solid, very firm, and we're at ease, at ease enough that we can sit meditation without a lot of anxiety or without boiling over because of our anger towards others and so on. So it's worth it, it's in our own interest to learn good sila. 
because it brings a stability to our practice so that the insights and the, the development of the mind will go in the right direction and be truly solid. It's one of the ways they describe enlightened beings is their sila is established. It's normal for them to not give in to their passions, their negative and destructive emotions, so they don't get into quarrels and fights. They don't pursue their lust for power, for sex and other things. They're restrained and calm enough just quite naturally because of the training in sila. Another simile you might think of, like we, when we build here, we often put in a, a wood stove, a wood fire for the winter. Because we've got lots of firewood here, we can use a wood stove to keep the place warm. The fire is obviously a very destructive thing. If you don't manage it properly, it can burn a whole building or a whole forest down. So wood stoves are always made with very solid, thick metal walls, metal plate. They have a thick glass door. And as long as it's being made properly, and then it keeps the fire inside, you get the benefit of the warmth, but it doesn't destroy or harm anything. Of course, you always have to be careful when you open the door because ash can drop out if you're not mindful and cause a fire outside. If you're careful and keep the place clean, then it's a good source of heat and nothing is destroyed. The sealer is like that. It provides a big, strong framework for our practice which keeps the passions, the more destructive forces that we can have in our minds at bay, restrained, so that we can contemplate them and let go of them internally without having a lot of suffering with other people. Even sexual desire is suffering in a monastery. If you're trying to follow it, it brings you into conflict with others conflict with the surroundings, it can be a very destructive force, and let alone anger. Anger is always a very obviously destructive force when it comes out in our speech or actions. So a sealer is like a big metal, strong, thick metal box around the fires of our kilesis, keeps them in a place where we can contemplate practice with them. So if we're regularly developing an attitude of goodwill, patience, compassion for others, understanding, and basic sense restraint, then the mind has a chance to go deeper into the practice of meditation. Also we reflect on the things we use, you know, another outlet for our Passions, archelaces, is requisites. We don't have a lot as bhikkhus, but even the few requisites we have can still become a great attachment. Our kuti can be just the way we like, can be very attached to it, the furnishings or the way it's set up and so on. Or our robes, or our the food we eat, and so on. So every day we either chant or just mentally reflect on the use of the requisites. You know, why do we use the things that we use every day? What's the purpose of the food we eat as we recite? It's not for fun, not for sport, not for fattening, not for beautification, only for the maintenance and nourishment of the body for keeping it healthy, for helping with the holy life. Thinking thus, I will allay hunger without overeating, so that I may continue, continue to live blamelessly and at ease. 
It's just a simple reflection to remind you, get you back to mindfulness of what food is about. It's not necessarily that we have to go without food. We're already restrained in the way we eat. We only eat one meal a day, one main meal a day. We just learn to reflect wisely on what we use. Again, just to manage our passions, the fires of the kilesis that might want to come out, sometimes comparing with what other people have, comparing what, with what we used to have maybe as a lay person where we had more money, more possessions, or just caught up in fantasies of what we might want in life. Endlessly stir the heart up, you can become quite enraged sometimes over very small little things, just for because we fail to reflect wisely on the use of the requisites. All of this supports the mind calming down, reflecting on the use of the requisites, developing goodwill, compassion to the other people around us. So that when you come to meditate, the mind is already calm enough to settle down onto a meditation object, onto the breath, onto Bhutto. Yeah, the preparation is as important as the actual sitting and walking meditation we do, developing right attitudes, right understanding of the practice can already be half the, half the victory. That partly comes through associating with the wise. So we have our teachers, we respect our teachers, we listen to, discuss with and take on board what teachers say. Zajjan Mahabua used to say, having a good teacher is like a shortcut, saves you so much time because they point out how to practice point out the dangers and give you good advice how to overcome obstacles. As the Buddha taught, sevana ca balanang panditanang ca sevana puja ca puja niyanang etangmang galamutamang Association with the wise and avoiding fools, respecting those who are worthy of respect. Yes, the first, very first point he made teaching the devas what is auspicious in life. That teaching was so powerful, they say, that all the world systems trembled. It's such an important teaching, and that was the first line. They're respecting our teachers, listening to teachings, really taking them on board can save us so much suffering. But even external teachers are not enough. We also have to internalize the teachings. So associate with the Dhamma internally. This is why Ajahn Chah encouraged us to develop wise reflection. Patiently returning to reflect on the Dhamma over and over again. Reflect on the requisites, reflect on our sila and reflect on our state of mind as it presents itself every time we sit down to meditate or we're doing walking meditation or even just doing activities around the monastery constantly coming back to reflect on, on the Dhamma in the present moment this is like associating with the wise but inside, internally you can ask yourself in in one day how how often are you with wise reflection and how often are you just with random thoughts or distraction or quite obvious just defiled states of mind, greed, anger and delusion in all their forms. So internally, mentally, who are we letting our mind associate with? 
Are we associating with a lot of kilesas or are we trying to associate more with the Dhamma in our minds, in our hearts? This is where much of our practice is done. It's just changing the way we look at the world instead of always following defilement, working on defilement and upholding defilement changing that to make Dhamma the priority, working on the Dhamma, bringing up Dhamma reflections and using them. The only way we can liberate ourselves is by doing this little by little, patiently working at it. This is what will bring up more mindfulness, more clarity and more wisdom. Like Ajahn Chah said, as human beings are experienced, however successful we are in the world, however much worldly happiness we find, we're still very much caged up by our experience. We're like birds in cages because of the nature of sensuality, this sensual realm, the Gama Loka that we live in, you know, even if you become very wealthy and successful, it's only like your cage is just a little bit better than the next guy's cage. It's still a cage. It might be a golden cage with nice golden furnishings inside it, but it's still a cage. Where we're practicing to break through and escape from that cage is by developing mindfulness and wisdom that turns internally to see the nature of this cage. See how it's formed through our craving and attachment following Kalesa. Ultimately in the end there isn't really a cage anyway. It's all Anicca Anatta. But for conventional purposes you know, we describe our experience as a cage. We're limited by this world, by our attachment to it, our constant seeking of pleasure, constant running away from pain. And we're learning to reflect on that, turn inwards to see how we create a cage by the limitations of our attachment. As we're contemplating, why isn't the mind peaceful as we start to meditate? Even the way the Buddha talked about working with the hindrances, very much in the same language. He talked about how you're stuck or limited by the hindrances, the sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, anxiety skeptical doubt. They're another form of the caging process or the cage that we're living in. Living in. It's how it manifests for us. As we med meditate we can see that clearly. It talks about sense desire being like coloured dye, very strong coloured dye. If you talk about your mind being like clear, pure water, but then any time you have sense desire for sight, sound, taste, smell, tactile sensations, then it's like strong coloured dye comes into the water. So if you're a bhikkhu and you have a bowl and you put your, fill your bowl full of water so, and you want to look at your reflection in the water, if it's full of coloured dye, you won't see any reflection. Might as well just put paint in there. If you put paint in your bowl, you wouldn't see any reflection. That's like the effect of sensuality, sense desire on the mind. Ill will is like boiling the water, getting your bowl and putting it on a fire and boiling up the water inside it. It's bubbling so hard you can't see any reflection in it either. Sloth and torpor is like algae or moss forming on the surface of the water. You left your bowl out 
in the forest damp winter maybe gradually green algae would form on the surface of the water you wouldn't be able to see anything in it Restlessness, anxiety, agitation, it's like wind blowing on the water, ripples of wind, stirs it up. Skeptical doubt, it's just like putting your water in a dark place, putting the bowl in a dark place, no light. You can't see any reflection, anything inside. So even the way the Buddha talked about the experience of the mind under the kilesas, it's like it's, it's trapped, surrounded by the kilesas, overwhelmed by them in different ways. And the way we're meditating is to see ways through that. You know, liberate the, the way we meditate is to liberate the mind from the hindrances. But first of all, you have to recognize that you're trapped, that you're not free. That's where wise reflection comes in, patiently observing what's going on as you meditate. What is it like when sense desire takes over the mind? It can't settle down. It becomes fixed on different objects, visual objects, memories. You know, little kids don't have much memory so they sometimes seem very pure in their mind because they don't have a lot of sanya. but as we grow older we get all the sanya based on our sense contact desires, what we like, what we don't and it keeps popping up in the mind to feed more sense desire even if you meditate and cut off your senses so you're quiet in a dark place with your eyes closed, no sound. There'll be plenty of sense objects arising internally. Memories, visual memories, different ideas popping up. All of it colors the mind, takes away the clarity, as we know. But we have to really reflect on that, look at it as an experience. And then find some good techniques to break through it, to calm the mind so it loosens its attachment to those sense objects. So we're contemplating a Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta and a Supa using these different reflections, applying them in different ways. You have to be creative according to the way our mind is, according to the way its, its particular sense attachment, attachment to the senses comes up. Reflecting on ill will as an experience, whatever the justification or the reason for it, it's always agitating. It always heats the mind up just like the boiling water, traps the mind in that particular realm, that experience. It's suffering. If you were to die when you're angry, then the Buddha said, oh, it'd be instant rebirth in a unpleasant place because it's so agitating to the mind so as one dedicated to meditation any time anger arises our job is immediately to work on a calming the mind till it subsides whatever the technique that works to do that that's our first priority the monks are always practicing patience our job is not to go out and have conflicts and arguments and quarrels internally to turn to see anger is the real problem. We have to reflect on that over and over again. Sloth and torpor like the algae over the water. It's a matter of breaking through the algae. You have to put effort and energy into the practice. Again, patiently being willing to work with 
states of dullness, tiredness, and recognizing that a lot of our dullness and tiredness is not because we really need to sleep, it's just because the mind is lacking stimulation, lacking mindfulness, lacking energy and effort. This is why late night practice is very beneficial, just being willing to work with states of dullness, tiredness, sitting, if you can't sit then you can walk, having walked come back and sit and so on. Breaking through the algae of the mind, brightening the mind within it. You can see the liberating force of mindfulness very clearly when you break through a state of dullness. <coughs> Restlessness and anxiety, it's just... In the end it's nothing in itself, it's just wind on the water, it's just ripples of wind. There's no real substance to it. But still we have to use wisdom to deal with it. We have to reflect most of our anxiety is about things that haven't happened it might happen, may happen, even if it probably will happen, we still don't know, it's still unsure. And the future is very uncertain. Or anxiety about things we haven't done, or we can't undo the past, or if we've done something wrong in the past, we have to accept that, move on, and learn from it. So finding ways to anchor the mind in the present moment to break through this constant restless energy, always planning and scheming or worrying. That's why Maranusati, death contemplation, is so useful for that. Skeptical doubt, again, recognizing the darkness of that as a mood in itself, reflecting on it. And when I'm caught into doubt, just recognizing this is doubt, this is uncertainty, this is what it does to the mind. Doesn't lead to peace, doesn't lead to clarity and understanding. Endless spinning around, going nowhere. And this is how Ajahn Chah said we have to develop the practice. Wisdom develops samadhi, so we patiently apply ourselves to the meditation and then use wisdom, reflect on what's going on. If we're suffering, we'll look at it, what's happening, why are we suffering, where's the cause. Sometimes just observing how suffering arises and passes away, simply by being patient and watching it. Even the most extreme mental state, the mind boiling up with some kind of lust or anger, it can just dissipate quite quickly and easily sometimes just by being patient, watching it, not giving into it. And these are the kind of the skills that Ajahn Chah and our teachers encouraged us to develop in the skills of a bhikkhu, one who is learn, learns how to find victory over themselves rather than always trying to compete, find victory over others or the things of the world. The true victory and the real most valuable victory for humans is victory over our own minds and developing more patience, more mindfulness, more clarity, more insight. This is what will bring us real liberation. Even just remembering past victories, if you've had any success in your practice, however small, just remembering that can give you inspiration to keep on practicing. If you've done it before, you can do it again. If you've seen the body as impermanent before, as a, unattractive, had a sense of detached awareness towards it before, you can do it again. If you've managed to overcome your anger towards somebody before, you can do it again. If 
you've had sleepiness and dullness before but you managed to get through it, we well, can do it again. A lot of our practice is about repeating, getting better at it, learning what we need to do to break through these hindrances little by little. Then if we do sometimes have those moments of clarity when the mind gets more peaceful, more calm, a little bit more detached awareness, then some of these deeper teachings become more obvious. You know, the separation, the true liberation of mind is when we see conventional reality or assumed reality for what it is, an ultimate reality for what it is. Breaking through that normal way of relating to the world from the sense of self that we're so used to, we've invested in for so long. You know, actually having a bit of detachment towards your own body, the way it is, the way it looks, the way it feels, the way its health is, rather than always just my body, I'm like this, I'm like that, and reacting and responding to every bit of pleasure and pain actually be able to look at it with some detached awareness you know, that's liberating sense of seeing the body as a body rather than me, mine, myself see it as four elements rather than a human being with a name and a personal history and so on anybody's got a name you start off with one name when you become a monk you're given a new name the names are just slapped on top of us. The ultimate reality behind it is it's just a body, four elements, 32 parts, five candors. This is something we have to keep working at, looking at. But whenever we have these glimpses of reality, then this is the liberating force changes our perception, our view, little by little. We see ourselves as four elements, we see other people are the same. So the loves and the hates for the world tend to change then, become more dispassionate, more detached, more equanimous towards the world. The subtle attachments of the mind are obviously much more refined, maybe take a more refined level of awareness and understanding. The attachment to this body, just the basic attachment between mind and body, that's something that we can all start to experience. You know, Any time your mind gets beyond the hindrances, you start to settle down, the mind becomes more peaceful, then you're experiencing a letting go of the body letting go of your senses, letting go of the normal concerns for feeling pleasure and pain and so on. That's something we can all experience and that's where you're learning, that's where insight comes. Of course, the more we practice, then the more we learn, the more we do it, and there's always the tendency to want to tell others about it as well. And that can be good, practice of kindness, compassion, sharing what we know, it is part of our tradition. But we always have to remember when we teach others, we're also teaching ourselves. There's no way around it. Whatever we tell others, we have to be prepared to do ourselves. Whatever we're teaching others to see, then we have to see it ourselves. When I first went to see Lumpur Ben many, many years ago, it was the first thing he said, 
to me, I was with some other Western monks, he said, oh, you Western monks, you always teach. You're very good at teaching, but don't forget, you have to teach yourself. There's no point just teaching other people about the Dhamma if you can't do it yourself. And it's natural, the longer we stay in the robes and we get more experience, more knowledge, we can share that with others. And it's good. We also have to remember, don't let it become a, a block or something, another form of delusion. Oh, I can do it, I can teach others. Maybe inside we're not practicing for ourselves. Remember the story of Somdet Do. He was such a good teacher, he became the teacher of kings and ministers, very influential in the time, over a hundred years ago in Thailand. He was the teacher of Prince Mongut, who became Rama the fourth king. But for many years he was a monk before he was king. And then when he did become king, Somdet Do was the abbot of Wat Rakung across the river from the palace. So he's still very influential on the king. He's the only one willing to stand up to the king if the king was wrong or got it wrong. No one else would dare to, because they might have to lose their life. I know many times when he had to teach the king a point of Dhamma that nobody else would dare to. One time, he uh, was in the monastery and the king and some of his attendants and cronies, they had come down to the boat landing outside the palace and they're having a party, lots of drinking. It was all very public, not very beautiful for a king, behavior for a king. Of course, nobody dared to say anything. And Somdet Do got in a little paddle boat and paddled across the Chao Priya River all the way to the boat landing where the king was. The king saw him arrive in a little boat paddling himself. He said, what's this, what's this? I gave you the title of Somdet. Why aren't you living up to that title? Why are you paddling yourself? Why isn't someone paddling the boat for you? Somdet said, well, if the king can come out and drink in public like this, have a party in public like this, then a Somdet can paddle his own boat. He turned the boat around and paddled off. He made the king think, mm, maybe it's not the best thing to do. They never drank again in public. There's another time, there was a funeral in the palace, one of the royal family died. For a hundred days they have chanting every night and all the senior monks from different monasteries would go do the funeral chanting which is quite complex. They call it the Abhidhamma, yet uh, the seven books of the Abhidhamma are quite long. Very easy to make mistakes, so all the monks are nervous, but the old senior monks were fine. But as the days went on, the more junior monks would be sent until it got right to near to the hundred days, You're right down to the most junior monks in the monasteries. Four of them had to go and they're all quaking, trembling, because they had to go and chant for the king. They turned up and they're sitting on their high seat waiting to chant and the king came in, the king, so fierce looking to them, and he'd been a monk 28 years, so they knew he knew the Pali chanting. They're all so scared, they just bolted. They're so scared, they just ran for it. Couldn't chant in front of the king. The king was shocked, turned to his assistant and said, oh, am I that fierce that the monks are now running away from me? He's very displeased. The monks had been so scared that if they chanted wrongly, maybe they'd be sent to prison or beheaded or something. And indeed, by running away, the king was displeased. So he said, send a note to Somdet Do and tell him these monks have to disrobe. 
they brought shame on the Sangha by running away. So he sent the note across the river. Somdetto was in his kuti and the man offered him the note saying these monks should disrobe. Somdetto had just been doing his evening chanting because we had three sticks of incense in the incense holder and he took one of them up when it was burning and he burnt three holes in the paper that the note that the king had written was written on. Can't remember if he wrote anything else. I think he but anyway he sent the note back to the king. The king received the note and just saw these three burn holes in it. And he knew something down and I often talked to him about how the Kalesas were like fire, greed, anger, and delusion. And he instantly knew what the, the message was. Rather than blaming the monks, he should look at the Kalesas in his own heart. So in the end, he didn't have the monks disrobe. And Zomdet Noah is famous for that, getting people to turn, turning situations around, getting them to look at their own behavior, their own minds, which is what we have to learn to do. We teach others, we have to teach ourselves. Practice is about practicing with ourselves. Even if you live with other people, you can notice some people maybe have very good qualities, some people maybe make mistakes, they have some bad qualities, but that's their business. If you live in a community, you have to learn to be responsible for your own practice, not spend all your time judging others look back at your own heart, your own greed, your own anger, your own delusion. And these are the fires that cause us all our suffering in life. And the only one who can put out those fires is ourselves. Nobody can do it for us. So we have a night of practice. Uh, we'll be doing evening Parita chanting at 11.30 tonight. So between now and then, you're free to sit or walk as you wish. And I'll leave you with these words for your reflection. <laughs>